So our focus text this morning is Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading and uh, working our way through verses 1 through 4. But as some of you have already noticed, chapter 2 starts with the word, therefore. So I think it would be useful for us to read uh, the opening verses of the, of the book, Hebrews chapters 1 through 4. And I think that you'll probably be helped almost immediately to understand the argument of today's text. So once again, let's begin our reading in Hebrews chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 4. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Now please skip to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Therefore, and I would add that since God has spoken to us by his Son, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Please be seated. I want to talk to you this morning about apostasy. It's an ugly word. Apostasy, according to the New Testament Greek lexicon, means a falling away, a defection, a withdrawal, a revolt. It is used to describe the state of those who who have fallen away. Those who have fallen away are said to be those who have apostatized. They are apostates. These are those who once professed faith in Christ, but no longer do so. Some of you might ask, is that even possible? Is apostasy really even a thing? Is it possible for a true Christian to fall away from the faith and in the end to be lost? The short and perhaps the best answer to that question is no. We believe the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal security. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells us, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He goes on to say, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. And that's taken from John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Later on in John's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus, speaking to those who want him to tell them plainly whether he is the Messiah or not, says, I did tell you, but you do not believe. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That's John 10, 25 through 30. So if we hear Jesus, believe in him, and follow him, we are eternally secure. We cannot be lost because we are kept not by our own power, but by God's power. The Apostle Paul lays it out this way. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn of many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You hear the air of certainty in that passage of Scripture? He goes on to add, If God be for us, who can be against us? And still later in the same passage, a text that's probably been a huge comfort to you in your Christian life, he writes, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Romans eight thirty-seven through 39. So brothers and sisters, we are saved by God's power and we are kept by God's power. It is impossible for a true believer in Jesus Christ to be lost. But having said that statement, I would ask, does that jive with your experience? Do you know anyone who once professed belief in Jesus Christ and claimed to be a disciple of his who has fallen away from the faith, is apostate? I'm sure that if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know those who have fallen away. You can probably name someone right now who is an apostate. The scripture also contains examples of such people. What of Judas Iscariot? He had every appearance of being a disciple of Christ. What about Paul's former co-worker, Demas? Paul says of him, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. 2 Timothy 4.10 Are not these examples of those who once believed and have since fallen away? The answer is no. Listen to what the London Baptist Confession of Faith says. And I'm old school, so I'm going to read the old language. Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. But what about those who have obviously fallen away? What about Judas? What about Demas? Or that young pastor whose books were all the rage a few years ago, but now denies the faith? 
What about your friend who appeared to walk with Christ for a while, but now laughs about it and sees his former faith as a sign of his former immaturity? Well, the Apostle John explains it this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. 1 John 2.19 Those who totally and finally fall away are really just showing that they were never true believers. Jesus tells us the one who falls away does so because he has no root in himself. Matthew 13.21 The gospel has never truly taken root. But we need to note that there is such a thing as apostasy of believers, but it is a temporary one. Not all apostasy is final or complete. The apostle Peter, for one, denied Christ in a moment of cowardice and fear. He was later wonderfully restored and wonderfully used by the Lord. David wallowed in his sin for months before he was confronted by the prophet Nathan and returned to the Lord in repentance and faith. And if you think about it, brothers and sisters, every time we sin, isn't that a little apostasy? Are we denying the faith when we do that? These are just two examples of temporary apostasy in the Bible. I would point out that we have no idea what happened to Demas later on in life. But we do know what happened to John Mark after he turned back. He went on to become useful to two apostles and to pen the gospel of Mark. But there are those who are, to, to our appearance, fully and finally fall away from the faith. Note that statement, to our appearance. Our Lord knows who are truly His. He elected them. He calls them. He gives them spiritual life. He justifies them through a faith that He gives them. He sanctifies them. He keeps them, and He glorifies them. They are secure in Him. But let's be clear. The gospel is logical and reasonable. The argument is sound and can be accepted by the brain and not the heart. The gospel culture, the church, can also be very attractive to some people. In an increasingly chaotic world, its fruit is good and delightful to those who long for order or for a nice traditional culture. Or one can appear to come to Christ out of loyalty. We love our Christian parents or grandparents. Or maybe we have friends that we admire and want to please. Or maybe we just value loyalty to family and culture. We want to fit into it. For many reasons, there are those who appear to be believers but really aren't Christ's. But can we know if we're truly believers? Apparently, we can John writes to us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 The Apostle Paul tells us, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 The Apostle Peter puts it this way, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. In Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says, But he who endures to the end will be saved. So how do we endure to the end? Well, this is the great burden of the book of Hebrews. We persevere in the faith by paying attention to our great salvation, paying attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ and maintaining it. Experts have long told us that the original recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were most likely Jewish believers who were experiencing persecution, including imprisonment, for their belief in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Conventional wisdom has told us that these Jewish Christians were under pressure to renounce their faith and to return to the religion of their ancestors. That religion had its attractions. With its priesthood and sacrifices, purifications, rituals, and rules, it probably seemed, well, more religious. It had more to see, taste, touch, feel, and even smell. I would argue that that's the attraction of many false religions today. It seems more religious. You know, it had more to see, it has more to see, taste, touch, feel, and smell. But for these Jewish Christians, there was also that godly old man who took their, the blood of their sacrifice once a year into a temple that they could visit and see and be impressed by. It probably seemed much more satisfying than weekly meetings where they simply sang, prayed, and listened to God's word being expounded. The book of Hebrews does bear this out. The author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show his readers that what they have in Christ is so much better than what they had under the Old Covenant. They have a better message delivered by a better messenger. They have a better high priest who provides a better sacrifice. They have a better covenant. That's basically the message of Hebrews. It stands to reason that the author's concern for his readers is that they were looking back, perhaps with longing, and were tempted to, to return to their roots. And it is likely that the recipients of Hebrews were feeling the pressure from family and community to do so. We know that Christians were for varying lengths of times tolerated in the synagogues and kept within the Jewish community. We know that the Roman culture saw Christians as just a sect of Judaism for quite a while. But after a time, Christians became an object of persecution, and not just from the Jewish community. Roman culture believed in tradition and loyalty and could put tremendous pressure on people to conform to the traditions of their own culture, not necessarily just the Roman one. These people were regarded, came to be regarded as traitors, and Judaism was a sanctioned religion. Christianity was not. So let's note that one of the causes of apostasy is external. One can be pushed or nudged away from the faith. We've learned that in our study of the book of Galatians, have we not? False teachers had arrived in the churches and they played on the immaturity and insecurities of the saints in Galatia and they nudged them or perhaps pushed them away from the faith. And perhaps that's part of what's happening to the original recipients of the book of Hebrews. But when we read this book, we see it's a little more complicated than that. Perhaps they were being pushed away from the faith, but if we read our focus passage for today, we learn that they were more likely drifting away from it. 
At the writing of the book of Hebrews, the backdrop seems to be one of normalcy and comfort. To be sure, the hostility was there, always present in the background, but for the moment, not too bad. The situation had achieved an equilibrium, a balance, a homeostasis. Does that sound familiar? The readers of the Hebrews, the original readers of Hebrews, were somewhat comfortable, and that too in itself is dangerous. So while these believers were indeed under pressure to give up the gospel, the push and the nudge were there, but a bigger danger was that they were drifting away from it. And brothers and sisters, I think that's our, that's our chief danger when it comes to apostasy as well. Note what our author writes. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 2.1. Let's talk about that word drift for a moment. The word translated as drift here is a nautical term. It is used of a boat that has slipped from its moorings and then has drifted downstream or across the bay. Has this ever happened to you? All of a sudden you realize the boat's not there? Where is it? Uh, it's over there. Or sometimes it's used to describe a boat that has drifted off course because the helmsman hasn't paid attention, or perhaps there's been a poor navigator. This use of the term makes a lot of sense in this passage because of the reference to the word neglect. It's a word the author of Hebrews uses from time to time. The verse 3 reads, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So, here's the point. We can fall away, brothers and sisters, simply because we are not paying attention. This means that we don't start out with the intention to fall away from the faith, but it can happen because we've become distracted. We are paying attention, just not to the right things. Or perhaps we're not paying attention to anything at all. To be sure, we can be bewitched by false teachers, as we find in Galatians 3.11, or we can be allured away by the attractions of the world, but oftentimes those things are effective only because we are inattentive. An absence of alertness to the right things can capture our attention and sweep us out to sea. Richard Phillips illustrates the principle this way. He writes, some years ago, when we were on a family vacation in Hawaii, my brother and I went snorkeling in a bay that was breathtaking in its beauty with its coral reef and multicolored fish. Our guide warned us from straying beyond a certain point because of the strong current that would pull us out to sea. He concluded that with stories of people who had failed to pay attention and had been pulled out by the current only to have their bodies wash up on islands miles away. What an apt illustration. Think of it this way. The churches in Galatia were in danger from the current of false teachers, but they had become susceptible to that danger because their eyes had drifted from the gospel. In the language of Hebrews, they weren't paying attention to what they had heard. This is why Paul reminds them, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul has to remind them of the gospel that they had heard at first. So why is apostasy dangerous? Well, I think it's fairly obvious. But apostasy is dangerous because we can find that we're no longer in the faith. 
we no longer believe the gospel, we can wake up one day and find that we're no longer believers. Or we can find that we were caught up in a false gospel. Why is that dangerous? Well, because of the consequences. Note what our author says. If the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and it did, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He is referencing the Exodus story here, of course. What happened to Israel when it rejected God's commands and refused to enter the promised land? Well, God led them around the wilderness for 40 years, and they died. The author of Hebrews here is making what they call an a fortiori argument. If, hit, if this is what happened to them when they rejected a lesser message given by lesser mediators, how much worse will it be for us if we reject the message spoken to us by the Son of God? Hebrews is full of such warnings. And brothers and sisters, these warnings aren't given to make us uncomfortable. They aren't given to us to make us fearful or doubtful. They're given to make us secure. So how do we avoid such consequences? How do we avoid washing up on an island miles away from the faith? Well, let's read chapter 2, verse 1 again. The author says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And I want you to hear the emphatic there. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Paying attention should be serious business. We ought to pay attention like a pilot navigating hazardous waters. It wasn't that the Hebrews weren't paying attention. They were only sort of paying attention. Richard Phillips again writes, Drifting away happens on its own without much effort on our part, but staying on course is quite the opposite. It requires constant diligence. But there's an important question. To what do we pay attention? Do we pay attention to ourselves? Do we resolve to do better? Do we need to develop more self-discipline? The author of Hebrews has a different remedy in mind. His remedy is to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We avoid apostasy by paying attention to what God has done for us in and through Christ. What has he done for us? Well, using the first chapter of Hebrews as sort of an outline, one of the chief things he has done for us is that he has spoken to us. Hebrews starts with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. I don't know how you can read that without having chills go up and down your spine. God has spoken to us. He was under no obligation to speak to us. But as an act of gracious, powerful kindness, he has chosen to reveal himself through a perfect, complete, and final revelation, his son. Jesus perfectly reveals the character of God, not just through his words, but through his actions. He has spoken to us with authority and with power. He, the one through whom God created the world, he, as the Apostle Paul writes, was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 10. It would seem that the author of Hebrews shares Paul's wonder at what Jesus was willing to do. Wonder at the fact that God was willing to become man so that he might become the perfect sacrifice for us. He laid down his life so that we might live. This thing needs to be in our minds constantly. But we shouldn't just pay attention to the fact that God has spoken to us. We should focus on the way that he has spoken. He has spoken to us as much by his actions as by his words. And he has spoken to us in power. The author of Hebrews tells us that he first made purification for sins alluding to his sacrifice, but also to his office as our great and perfect high priest, as well as to his once and for all sacrifice. We need to be constantly reminded that God has spoken to us by what he has done. This is what the author of Hebrews does for his readers. They were looking back longingly at a human high priest who took their offering, sacrificed it, took its blood into the holy place. He reminds them that this is just a type and a shadow. They have the real thing. They have the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice made once for all, not made year by year or week by week. And we also know that God has accepted these things. He demonstrated his acceptance of Jesus' perfect sacrifice by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. And he sits there interceding for us as our high priest, and ruling as our king. And we possess these things by faith. The author of Hebrews is saying to his initial readers, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your great salvation, and now you want to go back. He doesn't say it, but you can also almost hear him echo the Apostle Paul from Galatians, Oh, you foolish, foolish Hebrews. This is why he warns them. If they received a just retribution for every transgression and disobedience, speaking of those who didn't pay attention to the old revelation mediated by angels, what will happen to us if we neglect such a great salvation? So how do we avoid falling away from the faith? Well, we pay much closer attention to our great salvation. And well, I'm, sh- I'm sure you're wondering at this point, well, what do we actually do? How do you pay much closer attention to what you've heard? Well, it's not so much about what you do, though there are things you can and should do. It's more about what you believe. What does Jesus say when the Jews ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What do you need to do? Well, you need to believe in Jesus and maintain that belief in him. Once again, there's a clue here in the word neglect. Brothers and sisters, you know about neglect. You know it when you see a neglected child. You know it when someone hasn't cared for a pet. When you buy a house or a used car, you look for signs of neglect. The opposite of neglect is maintenance. There are things that need to be done on a regular basis so that things don't fall into neglect. 
So one of the things that you can do is maintain and make constant use of the means of grace. You know what one of the problems of the original readers of Hebrews was? They weren't going to or doing church. The author writes in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways we neglect our our salvation is to neglect to meet together. We need the regular instruction and proclamation of the Word of God. We need regular participation in the Lord's table, in prayer, and in worship. But we also need one another. We need church on Sunday morning to be sure. We need that corporate worship and fellowship, but we need more. We need to cultivate fellowship with believers who will stir us up to love and good works. Let me put another plug in here for our corporate prayer meeting, but also for our small groups. This summer, as Justin encouraged you to do already today, invite people that you can encourage and who can encourage you into your home or to the park or a trip to Dairy Queen. And let me say this, some of us, when life gets hard or busy, what's the first thing that we cut out? Well, it's church. Brothers and sisters, no. Don't do it. That's when you need God's people the most. And secondly, and I'm reluctant to bring this up, it's an easy application to make and could probably be an application made in every sermon, but it needs to be said Read your Bible and pray. You're probably thinking, I knew he was going to say that. I'm sure that you did, but I'm also sure that life is going to push and nudge you away from that. You know to do it, but do you do it? To maintain a house, a car, or a child, there are things that need to be done on a regular basis, and this is one of those. Don't see regular time in the Word as an option but a necessity. And I would say, read your Old Testament. The author of Hebrews points out that we have a better message brought by a better messenger. And you know, that's really all the point of all the talk about angels in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. I have to tell you, I had two pages of this sermon devoted to that, but I decided it needed to be cut out. Basically, it boils down to this. The old covenant was mediated by angels, but the new is mediated by God's Son. It's a better covenant given by a better mediator, but the writer of Hebrews isn't disparaging the Old Testament. He tells us it proved reliable, but you'll notice when you read the book of Hebrews, he supports all his claims by constant reference to the Old Testament. He relies on it to make his argument. And I would add, if you want to see Jesus, to understand what he has done for you, what God has done for you in Jesus, read the Old Testament in the light of the New. It all points to Jesus. Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And note that he says, I came to fulfill both the law and the prophets. All of the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It introduces a different aspect of what he's done to us, 
over and over again, what he's done for us over and over again. And when you read the Old Testament in the light of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, you will see and feel the wonder of what God has been doing throughout history. It is glorious. That is one way you can pay attention to your great salvation. And finally, whatever you do, make the gospel of Jesus Christ the anchor to which you cling. I know that many of you are readers and have a passion for study. I know that many of you are active listeners to podcasts and readers of Christian blogs on the hot-button issues of the day. I'm not saying that those aren't important or valuable, but do not let those passions detract you from the maintenance of the gospel. Make sure that you take care to maintain your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Choose also those things that expand upon and expound the good news. And you'll notice that at Redeeming Grace Reformed Baptist Church, that we believe in a regular, systematic exposition of God's Word, and we do that to avoid teaching hobby horses. And in our private devotions, we can get, we can get that way too. So it's important that we go through God's Word in a logical, systematic, and expository way. So I would encourage you to maintain and uh, your hold on the gospel of Christ by reading God's Word regularly and systematically. And finally, brothers and sisters, do whatever you need to do to keep what Peter said calls your precious faith. Make the gospel your anchor. Stay tethered to that. Constantly remind yourselves that Jesus died and rose again, that he might give eternal life to sinners like you. Make him your anchor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we once again come into your presence with delight at what you have done for us. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word in both your Old and New Testaments. We thank you for what you have revealed to us through Christ. And above all, Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to make that gospel the anchor to our souls, that you would cause the gospel to be precious to us, that we would contemplate it day in and day out, hour by hour, and that we we would rejoice and hold on to what you have done for us. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.